Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice is many things. It is a Regency-era satire of the gentry folk of the English countryside. It is an episodic romance that details the courtships of not one, but several different women. And it is a comedy, ultimately concerned with the barbed wits traded between our main protagonist, Elizabeth Bennet, and her unlikeliest of unlikely suitors, Mr. Darcy. If Austen's book is a fable, then we can ascribe the title to these two characters. Darcy is pride. He has an undeniable air of pretension wherever he goes. He turns his nose up at nearly everything, as if he were the last human on earth upholding proper decorum. Darcy's attitude brings the prejudiced judgment of Elizabeth Bennet. She believes wholeheartedly that she sees Darcy for what he is. That is, a, a pretentious prig. These days, we would be more straightforward. He's an ass. Or so we first believe. Throughout the novel, both pride and prejudice are challenged in their way of life. The plot fates these two together, and through their constant butting of heads, unexpected emotions cause unexpected transformation. Though Elizabeth and Darcy seem to be the focus of the story, much is still to be said about Elizabeth's other family members. There's sweetly optimistic Jane Bennet, who has fallen for Darcy's pal, Mr. Bingley. There's Kitty and Lydia, both enamored with the strapping militia members who have come through town. And then there's the distant relative, Mr. Collins, who is heir to the Bennet estate. He believes he's doing a remarkable service when he proposes to Elizabeth. All would be well. The Bennet estate would mostly remain the Bennet estate. But she refuses him. Twice. The crown jewel of this novel is its understanding of romance and marriage. In a day when marriage was a strategic business move, Austin unleashes an almost controversial idea that romance is the only essential quality for a viable marriage. For characters like Elizabeth Bennet, you can't have one without the other. Romantic love is rendered as a simple phenomenon that's difficult to find. It's more than just passion or sensuality. It's also about respect and admiration, which for people like Elizabeth and Darcy are near impossible to acquire. But when it is acquired, that's something worth celebrating and commemorating. One of the most famous novels of all time, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice remains a classic for all the right reasons. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Book Club Masterpiece Theater Podcast. You will have music, I hope, Andres. I don't want us to be singing under or over the song. No, I don't. But what would it song. what would it sound like if we were singing right now? No, that sounds like like an oboe like competition song. That's just because my lips are shaped like an oboe. Which is why you got Robin to marry you. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, I am so, so excited to talk about this book. This is like your favorite book. Is it your favorite non-Lord of the Rings book? No, it's not. It's not my favorite non-Lord of the Rings book, but I forgot how much I liked it. I've only read this book twice before. Um, really? In fact, I, you've probably read it as much, if not more than I have, right? Did you read it for school? Yes, I read it in college. Which class? Uh, English lit. Britlet. Britlet. Oh yeah, English lit. That's right. It was Britlet. 
Britlet after 1800. That's the class. You read a novel? We don't really usually read novels. Usually like short, short stories. Or really, sh- well, I guess this is kind of a shorter novel. I read this in um, British novel. That was the first time I read it. I didn't read it in British novel because we started in 1900. I remember like that was the assignment and I was kind of like, cool. Okay. I've always been curious to read this because I think it was coinciding. It was co-mingling with my first foray into checking out rom-coms was that first college phase when I first started falling in love with them. And I think wait, what- the very first movie that started her off was when you showed me Sleepless in Seattle all those many dreary days ago. I showed you Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah, it was your DVD. I think I stole your DVD. No, no, I do remember. That was it. That was it. That was at your house. Yeah, remember yeah. you took me to the doctor? Yeah. And then you took me home. <laughs> oh, this is. And nursed me back to this health. Is clo- we're closely getting to our meat cute. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was some time after that, but you were like, you know what you need? You need a good movie. See, and you put on Sleepless in Seattle. Aren't, like, we must have. Aren't rom Since we the watched best. it at my house. <laughs> but since we watched it at my house. We must have stopped by at your place to grab the movie in the first place to watch oh, it. Oh, well, I mean, we lived so close. That doesn't surprise me. And like, I I think we probably had kind of an equal amount of DVDs to choose from where yeah. if we stopped by. But we made the effort. We made the effort. To stop by. We probably got a movie. I probably, we probably got snacks because you had just gone mm-hmm. to the doctor's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I remember watching Sleepless in Seattle and thinking that movie was surprisingly good. Are rom-coms good? Okay. Because like at that point, the rom-coms I've been watching were the modern rom-coms that were coming out, which was probably, I think we'll find in our survey, the worst time for rom-coms was like 2009, 10, 11. Probably. I, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, so few have come out in the past 10 years that I think it might have like that might have preceded a huge drop off. I'm it was it was the death knell. Yes. Like Catherine Heigl was the last rom com star and her movies were tanking and Jennifer Aniston was kinda in there and Reese Witherspoon was kind of on her way out to like they were all kind of like not interested in doing movies like that anymore. Like Reese Witherspoon did walk the line in like oh five and she's like, I don't have to do rom coms anymore. I can actually do <laughs> I have ascended from movies. the rom com genre. But I was like, wait, rom-coms are good. So I started adding more rom-coms to my Netflix queue. And yeah, it was right around that time that they're oh, like, that was DVD, like Netflix time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And the that was the book assigned is Pride and Prejudice. I'm like, cool, I'm into it. Let's check it so out. So really, I'm the reason this whole thing has become what it's become. No, the syllabus is. The syllabus is why. I had to read. But I was primed to enjoy it because of you. Oh, well, I'll take it. Well, we aren't talking about rom-com films today. We are talking about rom-com books. Um, this is Pride and Prejudice, written in 18... When? It's set in 1810 and 1811. I like that 18 when as a time. Oh, thank you. Back in 18 when. Speak- like, who, hell, who the hell knows? 1810, 1811-ish. Speaking of... Um, um, Ryan, I, I my first note in my Pride and Prejudice notebook, um, which it was so good to take notes. It, it really felt like being in school again. <laughs> you write in your you write in your books still? 
No, no, I wasn't writing in my book. I, oh. I wrote in, in oh. a notebook. Oh, you had a Kindle. You can't do that. No, you? I used to write in my books, though. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I did have to read this on a Kindle because my Jane Austen book collection, um, it was just, it was like a, it was an eight book collection of all the Jane Austen novels. And it was too, th- it was like carrying around a Norton. I never wanted to read in it. And so I ended up getting rid of it a couple years ago. It was a really beautiful copy, but um, I sold it to Powell's. And I've been meaning to pick up um, copies of it since of the individual books, but I just haven't gotten there. And so I had to read this on Kindle because I didn't order a book in time and we had to start reading it. Ugh, it. Do you think that copy of yours is still at Powell's? I hope so. I hope nobody has to drag that thing around. Have you ever found some of your old copies of books at Powell's? Yes. Um, it's the best thing. It's like a pawn shop. It's, but it's, it's almost like a, it's almost an insult, but it's also almost a, <laughs> it's like, Oh, it's still here. No one interested. Huh? It's like a treasure hunt. Yeah. It's like, this is the, um, the old dating profile that you've just like kind of ignored and haven't looked at for a really long time. And guess what? Nobody else has either. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 1813, I believe this is published after, um, Sense and Sensibility was published in 1811. Um, Mansfield Park, 1814, Emma, 1816, then Persuasion after that, um, uh, and Northanger Abbey. No, Northanger, I, Northanger Abbey was a, her first one. Uh, I think she, that was the first one she wrote. Yeah. Oh, but it just um, wasn't published till later. Yeah. But I, I, I reread this. I've, I've read all of them except for Mansfield Park and her unfinished novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read all of them at least once, and I've read Pride and Prejudice a few times. And this this freshest time we've read it, this most recent time we read it, has confirmed for me that yes, indeedio, this is the best one from her. Uh, I, I all across the board. I have not read Love and Friendship, um, and I have not read Mansfield Park or Persuasion actually. So I'm I, but I have read this three times, and it is it is a force to be reckoned with for a book like not only mm-hmm. her writing style but like the inventiveness of the characters it it astounds me how good this book is do you want to take a few minutes and like um let's just be english majors like like get it out of our system as english majors and like kind of start with kind of like the context of when this when this novel was coming out and what it meant at large for um literature can we can we have a little a little a little bit about that sure let's do an austin as preface to bronte sisters uh kind of talk um well it, i think it's it's really important to note that novels were not a respected uh art form at the time um, people respected poetry as the the way to enjoy storytelling and this is when the romantic poets were kind of at their height that you had lord byron was probably the most famous storyteller with his long form poems and his other short romantic poems, but he had other poems like Don Juan and um, uh, Child Harold and all these different kind of uh, stories. And the novel was kind of like seen as like kind of a trivial, like eh, mostly for younger girls, they, they'll read novels, but you know, the general populace, if you want to read something respectfully, you read poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, The only exception was Sir Walter Scott, who was writing his like Scottish um, historical epics. And 
it's right around now when the novel started to get its due respect. And I think it's because um, it's she, Jane Austen in her, when she was alive, she wasn't greatly respected, but people bought her books and like, yeah, it's pretty good. And by the end of the 19th century, she was, she got her due respect, but this is the beginning of the novel getting its respect. And, you know, the novel itself can do some pretty significant things in terms of storytelling. Yeah, I would say that um, even even if this book wasn't as widely read as, say, um, I mean, even even lesser known poets um, like uh, Shelley was definitely not read as much as, let's say, Byron, um, but he was mm-hmm. still super popular and uh, far more prolific than Austin because, I mean, she's writing a much longer for a much more complicated piece of work and for people to devote themselves to this kind of reading is even in the book a a little bit pointed at where like Mr. Collins doesn't read novels or literature um, or like the classics per se. Um, He couldn't even be bothered to. Whereas uh, Austin has Elizabeth be like, you know what, actually I do. And I thought it was like a little bit of a, a smart marketing ploy of her to be like, that's right. This character that you're falling in love with also likes to read. So continue doing it, dear <laughs> Don't reader. Don't you feel bad. But what, what this book did do was besides open up the novel as a form, it really brought forth other um, female writers. I mean, uh, you have right after this, you have Mary Shelley doing Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. That was uh, 19, or 1818. Something like uh, that. Yeah, yeah. 1819, I think. 1819. And then um, the Bronte sisters obviously were born after these books were published. Um, but the the kind of pathway, and, and we'll, I'll get off my high horse in a second, but like in reading it this time, I can, I, I just think that we're all so lucky that the pathway of literature started, or at least um, was lit on fire by this particular kind of writing like this writing style the um the catalog of an everyday life um because things can branch off and become more fantastic from there as it obviously did with the mystics and the like romantics but um this this novel being so smart is like like the standard to which i wanted everything after this to be held to and yeah. um, there's some arguments to be had for like American liter- literature of the time with, um, I don't know, like when I was taking my American novels course, we really dipped our toes back to even in the 1700s and there was nothing this good coming out, even like yeah. into the Nathaniel Hawthorne days, like this, this is a <laughs> testament and it's something I'd rather go back to than a lot of the literature I've read during that time period. Well, we'll get into this when we, I think we should do book clubs for the Brontes, um, is that the Brontes, you know, are famous for their Gothic romance, um, but I feel like they kind of elevated the Gothic romance to more literary standards, whereas what Jane Austen was reading at the time were also Gothic romances. They just were average. Yeah. Like, there's nothing mm-hmm. special uh, about them, and I think Jane Austen, I don't know, it seems to me her, like inspiration and um, influence is Shakespeare um, in terms of having these characters like um, Elizabeth and Darcy come off as much, much, much better versions of um, Taming of the Shrew. Very much so. um, Yeah. And it's, they, 
it doesn't feel sexist. It feels actually good. Catherine and uh, Heath Ledger. Let's just say Heath Ledger. <laughs> it is Petruchio and Katarina or Cat. Cat. Wow. <laughs> Anyways, it seems the only the only other famous kind of romantic comedy that had coming out. Well, no, you know, a better version of of Pride and Prejudice. Not a better version, but a better version than Tell Me That's True is Much Ado About Nothing. I still got to get you to watch the uh, David Tennant version of that and Catherine, uh, yeah. Catherine Tate. Yeah. Hey, oh, hey, uh, I'm going to start taking more liberties like this, but um, a little Star Wars reference for you. There's a Clone Wars episode where David Tennant voices a droid. That's Ooh, wonderful. man, I'm, so, I'm down. He's, shout out to my Star Wars fans. He's in a 2015 romantic comedy um, that doesn't look good, but I'm really excited to put on the oh, list. We'll check that out. But I can't think of any other authors that are in that space. I would say if we're going to create an echelon of authors um, who work in a rom-com genre, you have Shakespeare. I mean, that have stayed the test of time. You have Shakespeare, you have Jane Austen, and then let's call her an author. I guess Nora Ephron would be next. Yeah. You have Virginia Woolf. <laughs> no, like <laughs> I, I would never call her a romantic comedy writer. Virginia though. Woolf's like, I beg your pardon. She, she's like, I'm making my walls There's talk. Nothing Don't funny you about dare. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd like to just while we're being a couple of English majors, um, could you turn your do you have your book on you? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Just because my book, we're not going to be on the same page, though. This is why we needed to go to the 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 school bookstore and get the same copies together, so we could go to the same page. I know. I the the problem is going to be that I I I can't navigate on this stupid Kindle as well as you can. I can find chapters well enough. Oh yeah, and this is just I need you to turn to chapter three because I when when I hit chapter three, I was I was just kind of agog at Jane Austen's sentences. They are long and circuitous, but not in a in a way that loses me necessarily. Sometimes I have to reread them to understand their full meaning, but I understand where she's going because she uh, puts her intent in the last part of her sentences. It, they are passive at first. With They're kind of like Mr. Bennett when you think about it. They're really passive, and they have a description of information that you don't necessarily need to know at first a bunch of action in the center and intent for that action at the last part so go ahead and just read the the beginning of chapter three um not all that mrs bennett however with the assistance of her five daughters could ask on the subject geez how many commas was sufficient to draw from her husband any satisfactory description of mr bingley period <laughs> one sentence three lines one two Three, four, four commas. I think we have too many dependent clauses, not enough independent clauses. I mean, sure, but when you take a second look at it, you're like, actually, it still works. Mm -hmm. And it might be the best possible way to write a sentence of that length to get across the information you're trying to get across, but it is circuitous. (laughs) Um, And slightly frustrating at times, but I, I never got angry about it. I was just, I was just like, wait, what? Oh. Yes, I understand. When I got to the last 20 pages of this book, it was definitely kind of like, um, you know, when you go for a run and like the first 20 minutes you run, it's like, I don't I don't get why I was not wanting to go on a run. This is really nice. And then you get to the last 20 minutes of your run. It's like, why did I do this? 
why did I decide to do this at all? It just was like my brain was like, I'm tired. And I'm like, brain, you've only been doing this for 280 pages. It's like, I don't care. I'm tired. And it's not that she's exhausting, but it's just kind of like my brain was like, whew, we got a lot of words in there and things to process. I think it was, uh, for me, I haven't been reading a lot of classic literature of late, and it reawakened part of my brain that had been shut down for the past couple of years, it seems like, where... I started off a little bit rocky in my reading and I, I felt a lot of shame for how I speak <laughs> currently because <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're not up to snuff uh, in regards to Austin parlance. But once I got to the center of the book, it was, it was like I had learned to consume only spinach <laughs> and I was just yeah. consuming healthy literature and it just got easier and easier up until even the last page. Yeah, it's kind of like when you go on a different diet and you start that first, you go on that first day of that diet and you're like, this tastes like paper. Um, and then like you do it for a few weeks and then you actually get the palate mm -hmm. for it. Like, oh, I didn't realize this. And that's how I felt too. By the middle of the book, I wasn't thinking twice of what I was reading. It just felt like uh, contemporary language. And like there were even sentences and phrases that I think she uses the phrase pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, we still say pretty much. Yeah, and like Mrs... Mrs. Bennett, uh, she drops one of those as well, where she's she says, like, oh, she says, our soup was 50 times better than the Lucas's. And it's like, <laughs> I would never imagine somebody in the early 1800s saying 50 times, like being that hyperbolic. Literally be the world's best mom. Literally. Last English major okay. thing, and then I want to jump into the story itself. Do you, do you think Wickham, uh, did Jane Austen pull a J.K. Rowling and base Wickham on Lord Byron? Well, because Wick Wickham's a slut, right? Yeah, I, I think Wickham Wickham is uh, a devilish cur. I would say, um, mm -hmm. possibly, but I don't I don't know if she knew Byron. Well, she didn't. I don't think she knew him personally, but he was he was famous, and I think he was a famous Lothario. He was just a famous, like, um, he was famous for be he was like. He was he was he like, was like Kim 20, Kardashian of He was like 22 was at this point in time. So he was definitely well into his like uh, <laughs> I'm going to make a million babies career. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It just seemed um he seemed so specific a drawing, mm. a rendering mm -hmm. that he was handsome and people on the surface just loved him because he was so handsome uh, and respected him because he was so handsome. I, I, I see where you're coming from, but I think it's a stretch just because Byron Byron was so lauded and so like never for want of money. That's true. Like in some of Byron's poetry, he's like, I hate the fact that I've been served and waited on my entire life. All I want to do is go run in the fields again. And so I feel like Wickham yeah. will will never feel that kind of resentment. Because he'll never have gotten to that point. He'll always be supplicating and trying to get higher in society by the means of a black, a, a, what's a good word for him? A braggart. Blaggart. Yeah. What is, what is, this is a different story, but what is, um, what does Alan Rickman call Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility? She was with child. And the blackguard who had left her with no hint of his whereabouts. Okay, let's let's jump into um, the characters because this 
This story is not about action. It is about characters, how they relate to each other and how they act around each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And our main protagonist is Elizabeth Bennett. Mm -hmm. Liza. Yeah. Okay. So they call her Eliza a lot in this book. Um, Some, some call her Lizzie. Some people call him, call her Elizabeth. And I'm so used to watching. There was no, there was no brave soul who called her lizard. (laughs) Hey, lizard, how you doing? If anyone, if anyone would have called her lizard, it would have been Mr. Bennett. Yeah. Mr. Bennett, who will get on. Let's stick with Lizzie. We'll get there. (laughs) Um, She is without a doubt, one of the best characters in literature. I know it's been said a million times, but um, I, I was far, I was ready to go into this novel and say, oh yeah, she's great and all, but just for the time. And she to me is would you call her um a capital h hero or well i would call her a heroine a hero a heroine Heroine. or a great protagonist like what defines to make her a heroic elevate her to heroine status over um protagonist status the heroine of pride and prejudice is elizabeth bennett she is one of the greatest and most complex characters ever written not that you would know as a matter of fact, I've read it. Oh, well, good for you. I guess she is a, if you think of society as kind of a cage in a box that makes people either dull, mean, or frivolous, um, she is a hero for being true to herself and her convictions. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of heroes take chances to live by their code and virtue and work for others goodness and i think lizzie does that um oh so you're going with lizzie are we i mean i i call her lizzie because i've seen the joe wright version of this film so often and everybody calls her lizzie in that and not eliza but she she is a she is a character that um is principled is intelligent um is not mean but is honest and and she has real flaws and she has real flaws i mean she has prejudice come on and can she you just come to, out she, and say it yeah she has to get over it okay and her her main um foil in this is mr darcy and why don't you talk about him um fitzwilliam darcy fitzwilliam darcy fitzwilliam yeah who is darcy. who is cousin to colonel fitzwilliam <laughs> yeah <laughs> which not isn't that confusing but um mr darcy is the one person in this book who has a stick up his arse for a good 50% of it before Elizabeth kindly smacks it out of him. And ouch, that sounds like it hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I think it's safe to say that in the first half of this book, he is the stiffest character in literature. Um, He is. um, Although in, I'd say probably by the fifth chapter or so, we Austin starts I think she recognizes how stiff a character like that would seem from the outside without a little bit of insight into his heart, I guess, because this is a third person novel, mm-hmm. but one that definitely jumps into like that, that objective narrator jumps into people's thought processes a little when he starts recognizing how beautiful Elizabeth is. Yeah. And so we see a softer side. Much of him is redeemed by the end of this book because of um elizabeth's actions towards him of calling him out on his on his behavior which is bullshit behavior because he he's proud and sinfully proud and 
acts, behaves as if he's um, better than everybody, although we learn his heart, and that's not the case. He just doesn't know how to hold himself, and there's a lot of insecurity going on with him, and he doesn't know how else to show a gentility and civility other than to hold it in his highest regard, which means he can't stomach people like Mrs. Bennett. Which, really, who can? But at the end of the book, he kind of touches on the fact that he was raised to have a certain type of manner, and the only way to continually um, support that, that civility is with contempt for all those who do not have it. Yeah, and I yeah. think... They they pretty much get Elizabeth to a place at the end of the book where it's like, ah, she's good. She's learned her lesson. But Darcy's like 95 percent there. And they're like, eh, he's still a little proud. Dar- Just a little bit. <laughs> Darcy does that that thing where if you've if you've ever made a mistake and you're not used to people forgiving you or you are not used to forgiving other people, you're just going to nig on yourself a bunch yeah. where Elizabeth's like, you know what? Everything's cool. I love you and you love me. And that's what matters. And. Darcy's like, no, you you don't understand. I am an ass, and I'm going to continue <laughs> saying I am an ass. And yeah. Lizzie's like, no, I get it. Let's not talk about bad stuff anymore. <laughs> I I do think um, I I like the epistolary qualities this novel can have when the Me letters too. come out. The letters are the letters are the most dramatic moments in the book because that's when deep revelation happens. And that's the interesting thing is that these people cannot say how they feel in person they have to put it on paper or when they do say how they feel it comes out in a brooch of civility like the the two biggest instances of this being when darcy proposes to lizzie and they have their argument yeah and then the sec the second one being when um lady catherine comes and accuses elizabeth of being engaged to her yeah uh, nephew and just is super uncivil yeah and at those points i'd say those are the other like moments of dramatis yeah um but darcy's letter where he explains everything um yeah i i just love it because it's honest because he's it's basically like yeah i was proud but you know i thought these things about your family and can you blame me (laughs) i thought they dumb and she's like yeah they dumb but I think he does, like, sometimes when you're telling somebody the truth, but you tell it to them directly and you say, I'm not going to apologize for this, even if I said it wrong and I'll apologize for that. Right. Um, like, I'm not going to apologize for the intent, but the methods could have been better. And so, I don't know. I I loved Darcy almost as much as I loved Elizabeth in this book. Yeah, so um, Darcy is confronted by Elizabeth and via his like failed marriage proposal which is almost more uh devastating than mr collins's failed marriage proposal (laughs) yeah oh that's because there's real emotions involved but let's hold on i let's let can we can we i i want to do this right we're jumping into the middle and to the end and back again i want to start and i want to do like a little bit of the characters and then the story okay and we can just rush through the other ones okay uh, Mrs. Bennett is Mrs. Loudmouth, who um, may also be said, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but Mrs. Bennett gets everything she ever wanted at the end of this book, and she doesn't deserve it. I know. She doesn't deserve it. Everybody kind of gets what they wanted, except except maybe Mr. Wickham. Mr. Wickham. And what about Mr. Wickham? 
Mr. Wickham. And Miss Bingley. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, I guess they're the truest least deserving, but third place least deserving is Mrs. Bennett. Uh, by the end of the book, whenever she was speaking, I, my eyes wanted to not read what she was writing in the same way that Elizabeth wanted to not be in the room. Well, I love to hate her. I love to hate her. Yeah. I, I've seen her. Um, so in both the, the BBC and the uh, Joe Wright version of this film, she's played impeccably and it must be such a fun role to play. Yeah. It, it it's, it's brilliant. So Mrs. Cause no, no, no character is probably as hypocritically ridiculous as her. And probably from the genre of satire, one of the best characters ever composed. Uh, agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, then you have Jane, the eternal optimist. Yeah. Um, and refuses to see any negative in any, anybody. She must see them in the best light and will never give a character a benefit of, uh, what's the opposite of a benefit of the doubt. She gives everyone a benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yep. And, um, actually it's funny because everything about Mr. Darcy, Jane is the only one who gets him right through that optimism. Granted, she gets a lot of other things wrong about a lot of other characters, at least, or at least, um, she supposes that it must be a lot more complicated than we suppose. And I love Jane for that. Jane is the kind of friend that you're going to say, ah, 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 baby, honey, Jane, ah, honey. But she is, she is correct to have that attitude. It's a, it's a morally good attitude to have. Agreed. And, and I want more friends like Jane. Um, then you have Mr. Bennett, who is just sitting back in the cut, kind of laughing at everybody. And he's great. Like, I, I get why Elizabeth is his favorite. And I understand why she likes him a lot. But at the same time, like, he's he makes fun of his daughters as silly, but he appreciates Lizzie and he's he loves Jane. But at one point in time, Elizabeth is talking or is thinking about her parents. And she's like, my father never should have married my mom. Like it's, yeah, it's made him It's kind of a devastating recollection. It is. It's, it's one of those things that I bet a lot of kids have about their parents who have been married a long time and just being like, wow, you guys are together and you made mistakes, but you've decided to stick with it. And that's like, it must've been hard back. Like you couldn't get divorced. I mean, you could get divorced back in the day, but in a society like this as a gentleman, no, no. Yeah. Um, I, I used to think Mr. Bennett was like perfect. And like, I was like, he's one of the best characters. I'm going to be like him someday. And (sighs) and then reading this, I was like, oh no, he is a very bad flaw and he doesn't take parenting seriously enough. Like he will deal, he'll hear his children go cray cray and just kind of be like, you know, this is silly. I'm not going to dignify this conversation. I'm not even going to jump in. But Elizabeth had a good point of confronting Mr. Bennett is like, Lydia's kind of going off the deep end. You need to do something about it. And Mr. Bennett's like, ah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't really get the sense slapped back into him until after Lydia runs away. Um, until it's too late. Until it's, till it's too, late. too late. And you can kind of see how he became that way because he made the mistake in marrying, as Elizabeth said, for because her mom was like vivacious and beautiful back in the day. But he he found no connection to her in in an intellectual Mm -hmm. sense. And Mrs. Bennett cares five thousand percent about everything. And so how could he care and survive when he doesn't care that much to begin with? 
he's i think yeah. he's become more and more reserved and you know sarcastic over the course of his life just in order to survive being with someone he can't stand and they do jane austen does a great point of showing like parents are usually one of the two of these bennett's they're either over involved like mrs bennett or they're under involved like mr bennett and no matter what it's going to piss you off because you're going to find like the over involved parent just um choking you and the under involved parent is just going to let you down because they're not taking you know the plight of your family seriously and not taking responsibility for things so which one was yours which one were my parents yeah. Just joking. Um, <laughs> Don't say that out loud. That's horrible. <laughs> um, but I think I think that's that's human frailty is that parents are going to oscillate between the two, and I think parents are aware of like, am I over involving myself? Am I micromanaging my child, or am I not doing enough? Is it a rock? Is it a feather? I don't know. And I think that's that's the doubt that all parents will have. And it's that that's the kind of forgiveness I think and grace that children will have. It's like, I understand you were trying mm-hmm. your best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for Elizabeth to have that recollection of like, wow. So my parents probably didn't have a deep enough love to like get them through this. And you notice at the and end, it's very mature. Yeah. When, when it is very mature for her to recognize this, I think at the end of the story, Mr. Bennett, after he gets after Darcy comes in and says, like, I want to marry your daughter and he calls Elizabeth in to talk to him. He's like, don't marry this guy. You don't like him. Why would you? Because he's under the impression at the time that Mm -hmm. Elizabeth thinks Mr. Darcy's abysmal. And I think he's speaking from experience here that he is not a fan of living his or it's that he is conceded to live his life how he is forced to at this point in time yeah. and he doesn't want that for elizabeth and i think the courtship of jane and bingley is the like most balanced relationship that is to be held up because you have this vapid thing between lydia and wickham of like who knows what that is it's passion but it's also empty and i think everyone sees through it right sure um, I, except for lydia because even wickham knows that he's just there to basically get his rocks off um yeah and then lydia as as they describe wickham soon fell into indifference in their marriage and then lydia not too long after um yeah it is it is a gross courtship (laughs) but i think mr bennett probably recognized his the the relationship between jane and bingley as like ah that's the stuff guys you got it you've got the relationship but you've got the like chemistry and with darcy and elizabeth he's like really okay really all right you say so i i like the um the difference between darcy and elizabeth's courtship and uh jane and bingley's because jane and bingley's is all out out in front right it's happening in an observed ballroom it's happening at dinners it's um all right there for the public to see Whereas Darcy and Elizabeth's, are, it's all cerebral. It's all something that's happening happening in the background of their minds and then in unsaid looks across rooms until it all explodes because they haven't been talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Darcy, yeah. Darcy makes that common mistake that young men sometimes make where they fall in love with someone and then without telling them that they like them, they're like, I love you. Love you. <laughs> uh. Do you want to get married? No. 
Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, so then you have, I can't remember the order, uh, Jane, Elizabeth, then is it? Mary. Then Mary, who is the moralizer She's student. She's the bookish student philosopher instrument player. She's the, I'm doing a lot of busy work up at my room sister. Do we know if she will ever get married? Is she going to be... In fan fiction? Oh, yeah. Who would she marry in fan fiction? I, I can bet you anything that there's like 12 books about Mary. Who would Mary Bennett marry? Well, um... That sounds like a great fanfic book. Ugh. Mary Bennett Mary. Um, Ma- Who would she marry? Mary Bennett, while she was interested in Mr. Collins... <laughs> it's like, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> there's Yeah, there's an awesome... <laughs> when Mr. Collins proposes to Lizzie and Lizzie's like, hell no. Um, Mary's like, oh, well, I don't know. He's not that bad. I like his civility. <laughs> Could read theology at night. Oh, God. Their relationship would be so boring. Um, but yeah. maybe it would be perfect. Um, and then after that, you have Kitty, who I always think is the youngest, but isn't. And Kitty's just like kind of frivolous. She's she's a less intense version of Lydia, who is the uh, consummate flirt. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. And I don't think this book gets anywhere near any territory of slut shaming Mm -mm. a person like Lydia, um, mostly because they didn't have that. But also because it could have done a more Dickensian like a more moralistic. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't thumb its nose at Lydia. It's just like Lydia. You don't get it, do you? Like, it's just like we're not mad at your behavior per se we're mad at what it means for our family and she'll lydia is not only the aforementioned flirt but she is i think above all what she gets from her mother is ignorance yeah like willful willful ignorance and naivete um where she doesn't know i well i think she she knows and probably chooses to ignore the amount of shame and hardship she's bringing on her sisters forever finding anybody, anybody wanting connection of a family that might have a bad reputation after one of their daughters has like run away with someone. And obviously um, we haven't really touched too much on this, but we're dealing what this book deals with most um, is the decorum and rules of late 1700s, early 1800s society in in that of the uh, upper middle class, I guess we could say. Yeah, high yeah. court society. This is not, you know, we're not dealing with like um, the downstairs of the upstairs downstairs crowd. We're we're dealing with the upstairs, and there are, there are strict rules and, and to be followed. Even so, like I would say that um, in in that class, um, the the Bennets themselves aren't like that high in the class. Um, like you have royalty, then lords, then Mr. Darcy, then Mr. Bingley, then you have lords and then you have landlords, <laughs> which is basically what Darcy and Bingley are. Yeah. I mean, Darcy is like one of the biggest landlords, right? Is that kind of what he's got going for him? Yeah. So uh, Devonshire. Right. Oh. But also wrong. I'm in Devonshire with my aunt and uncle is like just a big county and his estate um, is it, it governs itself over a bunch of other houses and towns and lands and they depend on his kind of running things in order to like continue the like he has money he will give it to the poor he will afford 
loans on people as being somebody who has a great amount of wealth. Um, Do we, I know we don't want to get into the movie or the miniseries, but I think it's, I, I'm curious to know, do we see him dealing with his tenants in the movie or miniseries? Well, I don't know about in the miniseries because I haven't seen it for such a long time. But um, in the other movie, we we get the Mrs. Reynolds character. Um, and she walks them around and is like, oh, you you like Mr. Darcy? You know Mr. Darcy? I love him. It's you- William Darcy. Yes, yes, Mr. Darcy. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but we don't really get any any idea of how generous he is necessarily in the movie but in the books he's apparently extremely generous and we we get that through him saving lydia's marriage oh man okay and then the other characters you have mr bingley who's the nicest most affable man in the whole world yeah so mr darcy is grumpy cat and mr bingley is whatever memeable thing is the opposite of grumpy cat Uh, (laughs) he's a dog he's that happy little dog who's just like happy with whatever you got Mm -hmm. from any kind of thing anything tennis ball bone whatever he's like i'm just so happy that we're all here together and as soon as you put a leash on him he will follow you yeah um basically darcy is grumpy cat when you come home because grumpy cat's like this is my house i don't know why you're here I was sleeping and now you've ruined it. Wickham Whereas, Wickham is the guy who's holding hands with his girlfriend but is looking over his shoulder at somebody else's <laughs> girl. <laughs> yeah. He's that And mean. Bingley is Bingley is the dog that is there when you get home and he's so excited that you're finally home that you can go play. <laughs> and then uh I would say the one of the one of the three antagonists in this book um, is Miss Bingley, Charles Bingley's sister, who is both working to get Bingley married, not to Jane, who he likes. Mm-hmm. She is trying to marry Darcy, um, mm-hmm. and she is completely insipid towards um, Elizabeth. Um, I do like that in the end, Miss Bingley is forced to give due respect uh-huh. to Elizabeth. That she has no choice, and it's like, yeah, count it. Just, <laughs> it's great. Uh, I, I, Miss Bingley has just the most hilarious um, machinations that are just so ill thought. Oh yeah, planned. She's like, maybe if I'm a total B, and I insult somebody that this person likes, maybe he'll see it the way I see it and like me instead. Yeah. And so, like, they're hanging out at, um, I guess they're hanging out at Bingley's, and Darcy's reading, and she's like, oh, here, I'll, I guess I'll read too. I guess I'll read this, <laughs> I guess I'll read this book. And she's reading the second volume of the book that he's reading, yeah. and so she can't possibly follow what's going on, because she's not reading the first volume, yeah. and Darcy's like, what is wrong That whole you? night is so great, because after that, he's like, I'm going to write a letter uh, to my sister, and she walks over, and she's like, I like what I like how you write. It's so great that you're writing. Can you concentrate on writing right now? (laughs) She's right. Like, right. And Darcy's like, "Mm." remove yourself from my vicinity (laughs) is what he wanted to say. Uh, And then the rest of the characters are stupid. Like we don't. Well, then you have cat lady. Oh, I I just meant of their party, like Mr. and Mrs. Hurst and all them. Sure. Um, Uh, Let's talk about Mr. Collins before we get to Catherine. Yeah. Mr. Collins, the dreaded cousin. As I remember it, um grosser in the movie in some ways i mean in the book i feel like he's grosser in speech and in the movie uh we get to see his mannerisms and so uh the goo kind of ekes out of his 
what is it yeah. what is a good adjective to describe this character a gelatinous cube <laughs> he is he's not a wet blanket he's a blanket with lots of dog hair in it <laughs> <laughs> like he's just like this is just not helpful like, I understand that you're a blanket, but you're just making it worse. I'm trying to find, like, a modern-day comp for Mr. Collins from, like, a from a Gilmore Girls or or something. Because he's not quite... Yeah. Who's who's the barista in Friends? Who owns the shop? What's his name? Gunther? It's not, He's not yeah, a Gunther, Gunther, but, like, that was where my mind first went. Who He's hopeless, um, and he's annoying. He's on the same level of... Um, painful and actually um offensive as mrs bennett is he is and she has total disregard for him at times and then as soon as he's willing to and this is where her hypocrisy comes in is she always dislikes somebody until there is some advantage and then she proclaims that she always loved them and with mr collins he's more obtrusive where he thinks his opinion is worthwhile in every moment and on every subject yeah and there's when the when lydia runs off and collins hears about it he writes to Mr. oh Bennett my gosh what a horrible says, letter like, yeah it's like you know what i wouldn't worry about it it would be better if she were dead but if she weren't dead just don't worry about it and just disown her yeah make hey hey dude i know your daughter's being like horrible so disown her and it's probably better for the family i mean that's what i'd do if i were you and then yeah. after like Jane gets engaged. He's like, I heard you let your daughter in your house. And I have to say as a pastor, not very good. Like forgive her as a Christian, but exile her. That's probably best. (laughs) It's characters like Collins and Mrs. Bennett that Austin sharpens her knives. And somehow these characters don't come off as ridiculous to us that we still believe them. Oh, you mean hundred percent of the time. You mean they're, they aren't 100% characters. Right, and they don't come off as absurd and unbelievable. They come off more believable. Well, I've I've known I've known Mr. Collins's and I've known Mrs. Bennett's. And so I they they are extreme examples, I would say. But maybe back in early 1800s England, maybe they're not as much. I well, I think I I think she is satirizing the society that she's in. Yeah. And I think she's saying we live in a world of Mrs. Bennett's and Collins's, but we also live in a world of Darcy's and Elizabeth's. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she gets to be more critical of the society she's in by having outrageous characters like Collins and Mrs. Bennett's that you would have Mrs. Bennett's in the world reading Mrs. Bennett and they go, oh, how horrible. Uh-huh. How could a person say that? It's like, you don't get it. You're Mrs. Bennett. I And I think these characters and their outrageousness is highlighted even more by characters um, in degrees because you have Mr. Lucas or a uh, Mrs. Phillips, all of these interior characters that are like certain degrees away from either Elizabeth or her mother who are on basically opposite ends of the spectrum where it's like each since Jane, Jane Austen writes so many different characters um, the characters that we grow to love become more real by contrast. Like mm-hmm. if if these in-between people can exist, then I believe that this person further out on the edge exists even more. Right. Um, yeah, so I don't, there is no modern equivalent for Collins and that's just a testament to how well an invention he is. But he basically 
uh, comes along and tries. He he is he is an illustration of how the society worked. So since Mr. Bennett only had five daughters, then the property. Am I saying this right? His property by de- by default will go to the next male in the family, which is Collins. Yeah, and I was. Am I, I was, saying this correctly? I was yes. Um, I was wondering though when Lady Catherine talks to Elizabeth about this later. She's like, well, that's not how it worked in my family. And, you know, I do like Mr. Collins, so I'm glad it's happening, but I never would have allowed that. And so oh. so I, I don't know if it's because of her station or if perhaps um, allowances could be made by special like dispensation from uh, whoever was willing the money. I don't know. Yeah. But basically Collins comes along and is like, I understand that you guys are worried about, you know, the estate, you know, getting passed on to me and, you know, your daughter just becoming destitute and dependent and all that. But I'm here as your white knight. I'm going to marry Elizabeth. I'm Mr. Collins. Super suitor. (laughs) He's like, no. It's like in that office episode when Dwight um, asks Amy Adams. Is it Amy Adams? In that season one episode. Um, now, Amy Adams, isn't Amy Adams date Jim? Yeah, but Dwight asks her out first, and Amy Adams is like, no. <laughs> so it's basically Dwight asking out Amy Adams is Mr. Collins asking out um, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm I, on board with that. That's good. Um, Actually, maybe Dwight is kind of your equivalent of a Collins. He is, because... Like early Dwight? I know, like, later, latter-day Dwight becomes more admirable. I, I, but... I love that religion, Latter-day Dwight. Doesn't make any sense. God is dead. Latter-day Dwight. Like, Latter-day Dwight and Latter-day Michael Scott. Like, Michael Scott in season one is pretty Ooh. terrible person. He is. I would say that if if you added a degree of annoying civility to Dwight, that is a modern equivalent to Mr. Collins. Because, yeah, and I wouldn't put Because it there's past a code Dwight. of honor that's annoying about Dwight. I wouldn't put it past Dwight to pull a Mr. Collins and be like, Hey, I know we've known each other for a couple of days. I know that, um, you must know that my heart is overjoyed, but, um, yeah. So marry me. I still just love that Collins was like, gets rejected. And he's like, "Mm, mm, I hear what you're saying. Um, but I also understand that women are supposed to reject guys. um, Right. So thank you for doing that. I know that you're going to, Pretend to be modest. That's fine. You did the thing. So mm-hmm. acknowledged. I'm going to ask you one more time. And then she rejects him again. And he's like, um, well, that's fine. Uh, we'll retire. And then later on, I'll come back after you've had time to think about it. And, you know, think about it. And you then know, I'll ask you again. And I know what will happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember what exactly, but just in my head canon, like, I, I know something happens when he comes out of the room. And what... Do you remember what happens? He comes to the room and I think Mrs. He Bennett's talks like, to Mrs. So Bennett, what's yeah. news? What, what has been? And he's like, well, she said no, but I know she's going to say yes. And she's like, oh my God, my daughter. No, you're ruining my chances. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, yeah. I, I think Mr. Collins is like I was saying how another character gives another one kind of a, a more stark relief. Mr. Collins gives Elizabeth the chance to show her patience um, and her her rationality because she is like mr collins i am going to respect you 
I'm listening to you, but I want you to hear me when I say, I will not and never shall marry you. And yeah. she has to say that like 20 times. <laughs> yeah. And Elizabeth okay. suffers so much. She does. She suffers Colin. She suffers Mrs. Bennett. And she suffers Lady Catherine de Burke, who is just. And even to, to a her. smaller extent, but in a much more fun way, uh, Darcy. Yeah. Because she can just call Darcy on his bullshit. Yeah. But they, they call each other on their bullshit sometimes, too, because when there's sometimes where they have a repartee in a, I don't know, a mixed setting and Darcy comes over and says something nice. And then she's like, uh, I know you didn't mean that, Darcy. Don't be an <laughs> asshole. And he's like, OK, if you want to think of me as an ass, that's fine. Tell me how I'm thinking. Yeah, <laughs> and like uh, they the word she uses to describe Elizabeth is great. It's arch, mm-hmm. like thinking of her being playfully resilient against a character who whom she's made up her mind about, but isn't who she thinks he is in one respect. It's ah. <laughs> so i th- I think we backslide into. Like when we're being not our best selves, we're either more of a Darcy or more of an Elizabeth. Um, who do you see yourself backsliding into when you're on your... Um, like, am I more forthright and out loud in my judgment? Or do you default to being more prejudiced about someone and being stubborn in your beliefs about something? Or are you more proud proud and prideful like a Darcy um, that, well, I can't see you as a Darcy, so I'm going to just accuse you of being Elizabeth. Why so? Expound. <laughs> you can on do that. me. You can do me. So we can. There can be equality here. Um. Because uh, I would think. I think you're much myself, more Darcy. I know. Yeah. I feel like I'm much more pretentious and mm-hmm. snobbish. Especially college me is worse than Darcy because I would. I would. And I think. And this is relevant because I think rom coms like knocked me out of that course of being too much of a Darcy of when I started watching rom-coms was like these are great i'm enjoying these yeah then you were only pretentious about rom-coms sure (laughs) still am i mean it is a gentleman's guide to rom-coms it should say something that the first script we ever wrote together was called the coffee snob and was basically based on you yeah (laughs) yeah um but the beginning of the end of i'm still a snob but the beginning of the end of my arch snobbishness started with rom-coms and realizing Hey, you know, sometimes people don't need to watch that high art movie that you think is super important. Sometimes they want to watch a Hugh Grant movie, and that's really important too. I would say yes to your accusation that at my worst, I tend towards Elizabethness because um, a, a lot of my a lot of my compunctions come from an injustice being done, and I feel like that's where Elizabeth stands her ground a lot. Mm-hmm. is seeing an injustice and being like ah that's that's not going to fly with me so i've made up my mind yeah and i think i think what's beautiful about this book is both characters have the moment of i am an ass mm-hmm. and they do something about it yeah yeah i do think it, it needs to be remarked on that jane austen her book's are all very similar to each other. She's a John Williams in regards to like the, like I, you can pick out a, a John Williams score, just like you can pick out a Jane Austen plot. Um, yeah. Or at least um, <laughs> the way it'll end. Cause she has her own formula for herself. Cause you have 
characters, there's romantic subplots, they get dashed because of circumstance, mm-hmm. um, and you have a romantic male lead who seems really good, but is actually bad, and or you have a romantic male lead who seems to be bad, but is actually really good. And in this book, um, we get both. Yeah, so in this we have uh, we have Wickham, who seems to be good at first, but he's actually bad. In Sense and Sensibility, it's Willoughby, who seems to be good. But it's always W bad. characters. I think it's the yeah, same in Northanger Abbey, actually. Um, and I was trying to think, and I feel embarrassed that I can't do this for Emma, and I think we'll have some Jane Austen superfans who's like, duh, it's this. It's kind of Mr. Elton with Emma, that she's trying to get Mr. Elton with her friend, but he's in love with her, and things go bad. But it's not... It's not the same severity as Wickham and Willoughby. And I think um, uh, Sense and Sensibility, I, she Mr. tried. Elton? What? I want to make sure that I'm saying the right character. I'm going to look it up. Hold okay, on. we'll wait. Keep going. No, you keep talking. Okay. I think in Sense and Sensibility, um, which was written before this, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that was first. She attempted to be a little bit more subtle with her characters. And then you get into Pride and Prejudice. And Jane Austen's like, no, this character is cold this character is warm this character is smart this character is stupid and she mm-hmm. is extremely explicit with her characterizations which i i don't know if she she just wanted to be a little bit more loud with her characters in this book but they're definitely more loud yeah i was right there's mr elton and i forgot there's also frank churchill that's Hugh mcgregor in the gwyneth paltrow version um i can't remember his crimes but he did stuff that was annoying we'll get into it when we do the emma stuff he trained anakin skywalker before he should have yeah yeah that's right it's all his fault (laughs) um so yeah did you that's the characters let's talk about this as a romantic comedy because this is kind of the forerunner of all romantic comedies and it kind of sets a precedent as far as flow is concerned Mm mm-hmm where we say as in hustle and flow what do you mean by that like you as you just described you have some characters who fall in love something goes wrong people are seen not to be who we thought they were the resolution is us being illuminated as to the characters that we've perceived to be one way or one character has perceived a character to be and then people fall in love at the end And Mm -hmm. I would say that's a lot of romantic comedies. I think that's most of the romantic comedies we've seen. Yeah. And I also kind of want to start marking similar similarities and differences with sense and sensibility a little bit more and say, you could accuse, like we addressed this with sense and sensibility. You could accuse those characters as being passive. Um, And you, you could accuse people like Elizabeth being passive, but that's just really unfair. Yeah, because I, I think she is active in her position. And we kind of talked about this in Sense and Sensibility, but she is as active as she is allowed to be without being cast out of the story. Yeah, and it's Darcy who is more the classical hero protagonist by his by his actions because he takes significant actions that change the trajectory of many things and he is the plot manipulator because of what he does Mm. and actually 
the conflicts start because of his actions because he's the one who tells Bingley like I don't think she's that into you I don't think this uh, Jane girl is like into it she kind of that's just kind of how her face is she likes everybody yeah I would just not go after that this characteristic of his is Darcy is going to be reserved and in the cut in front of people but as soon as he's among his own people he is expressing interests and recommending and so he is an extremely active character and he's the one who quote-unquote saves the day at the end but again he's he's the really the only one who's able to and i think austin in giving us elizabeth's perspective in this story is trying to say yeah darcy is the one who acts because he must and elizabeth is the one who persists because she is the one who is able to. And um, I want to mark this for when we watch it on screen for the miniseries in the film. Mm-hmm. But as a book, it's it's best for a book because Elizabeth, there is activeness in her cognition. That's where she has most control is how mm-hmm. she perceives things. And she sees things one way. And because of the actions of other characters, she gets to have a transformation in her mindset. And that's the most active thing she can do is change. And, and from a like pure psychological point of view, that's, that's very powerful of being able to change your behavior and change your cognition of a situation takes strength. It does. And that's very admirable. And so for the movie and the, the miniseries, how do you, how do you show that when it's, when it's cognition, it's not action. A lot of times, and we'll get to this more in the movie, but, um like in the joe wright version he shows it through through eyes like like an ice like a shot reverse well yes 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 i know i'm always obsessed about his hands but um the the way that people recognize an action um in in film is like you'll have a shot reverse shot where You'll have somebody's eyes looking to something. You'll see what they're looking at. And then you'll see their reaction to what they were looking at. And it's it's basic film grammar. But in, I think when you're filming a period piece where it's all about how big small moments must be. Like, because in, in, in these, in the later chapters of these books, we get these characters trying to propose to each other, but they're having to go through these very small steps and indicating like Mrs. Bennett indicates that it's still okay for Mr. Bingley to sit next to Jane when he comes back to the house. And then she gets them alone in a room together, um, but it has to be her job to do so. And it's all about like allowances. And so like in the Joe Wright version, there's a, there's a moment where Mr. Darcy touches Elizabeth's hand and lingers on it when he, hands her into the carriage which doesn't necessarily i mean he does help her into the carriage in the the book but um it's done in a way in the movie to intonate that there is more going on below the surface than we know um Mm -hmm. and i think you pointed out the epistemological nature of this book is also taken in those movies where we get voiceover narration and um, characters are able to elucidate it's almost cheating because the characters are able to say what's on their heart a little bit more um, through that narration. It's kind of cheating, but I can't see any other way because of the density of thought mm. that is needs to be 
conveyed to us. And and Elizabeth figuring things out is it, it's. I I wish more characters were able to be given space in a book to elucidate exactly how they got from point A to point B in either feelings or knowledge like Austin gives us in this in this mm-hmm. book because that's that's one of my favorite things about the literature is Lizzie saying I have been feeling this way but after being given this new information my thought process has changed and I'm willing to admit it to you the reader and mm-hmm. so we get to very personally see her change. Yeah, so her reaction to the letter from Darcy of being like, so I was thinking about your rejection yesterday and I just wanted to dress certain things. So here we go. And he just kind of... What, wasn't the argument that they had before that? Um, to me, it felt like a dam being released almost. Like so yeah. much, so much tension had built between the two of them that yeah. when they finally spilled that out... Whoosh, yeah, um, but he lays it all in the line of like okay here's the thing I didn't think uh, Jane actually liked Bingley sue me <laughs> I, that's what I told told Bingley that's what I thought I think your family is really annoying sue me I'm sorry um, and then he kind of explains you know other things he's like Wickham that dude sucks <laughs> and he just kind of like goes through it all and Elizabeth reads it and her first reaction is like that dick i just don't like anything that he said right however however and then she just kind of one by one really this is the beginning of her prejudice being like second guessed and that's that's what i love about the book is that we really get her emotions over the first or the letter um we get her emotions over the first half of the letter where she hates it and then she reads the second half and she's like well 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 that really makes me need to second guess what I thought about him and Mr. Wickham. So let me go back and like reread the beginning of this letter, see if I can second guess myself here. She's so, when she sees fault in herself or the possibility of it, she must analyze it. She is the least annoying analytical character I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, do you remember when we were in high school and college and like we would communicate um, with girls on like either Facebook Messenger or like AOL Instant Messenger, and I didn't have that till you, college. Oh, well, in college, but like you would have these long conversations with girls, and you you would start seeing it go a certain way, and it's like, wait, does she she like me? Is there something here? And then you go back through the messages and kind of like analyze of like, I don't know. She said, you know look at how much she wrote to me and like this is what she said and like really start drilling down into like what she said like it wasn't like sarah this book gives you permission (laughs) to be an obsessive um (laughs) pre-dater yeah but like i think i had that moment when sarah and i were talking over a summer vacation once where i was like is she wait she seems to really be talking to me on you know instant messenger not just like talking to me but like talking to me and the austin equivalent of that is going over to your um significant other's house sitting there with their family for a couple hours and then being like hey can we please go for a walk somewhere so that we can have a couple moments alone <laughs> sounds great i i exploited that time and just buttered myself up to all of the family members and it worked <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd say one of the ways that we we get Elizabeth's true heart and true guilt in this book is in her not being open with her family about Wickham and that resulting in Lydia being kind of uh, taken in by Wickham. So do you think this book, it's kind of a dangerous thought. Do you think this book is making a case to gossip? Well, I don't know, because it, it both argues against it and for it at the same time, where mm-hmm. if if Elizabeth had gotten her story about Mr. Wickham tells Elizabeth at one point in time that Mr. Darcy basically disowned him and didn't give him money that he was due by his father. And Elizabeth is like, well, that kind of tracks. So I believe it. And um, and it basically ruins her relationship with Darcy for a while um, because it's untrue. Um, but then when she learns the truth, she's like, I learned my lesson and I'm not going to like ruin Wickham just because I learned the truth of this. I'll just let him go and we'll let bygones be bygones. But that's what <laughs> ruins their family in the end. And yeah. so and that's true. That's the most perfect case of dramatic irony. irony. Yep. I do not think that is funny. Jinx, buy me a Coke. She could have done something about it, but she didn't because she was taking the high road and it got her pretty dramatic family ruin. However, however, little nepotis. If Wickham never ran off with Lydia, Darcy never would have had an opportunity to completely. What's the line from Dumb and Dumper? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> Let's Wait, no, I, that wasn't my point. My point is, Darcy having to deal with Wickham, mm-hmm. that is the like kind of clincher for Elizabeth being like, wow, that guy is a stud yeah but i really like how much time they take and darcy to his credit and i think this is what wins us the reader over to darcy is it's obvious that he still has affection for elizabeth but his main goal is not to woo her again it's to basically patch their relationship up it's to say i offended you and i said a whole bunch of ungentlemanly things and you think of me as not a gentleman so let me do some good by you uh, by not only treating her more respectfully and treating her relations more respectfully, but then when he is given the opportunity, really fix a situation that, you know, he's only very, very, very partially responsible for. And um, even when he comes back to the house, he doesn't say, look what I've done. And he tries to hide it. And that's the most honorable way to be is to, to do good and not ask for anybody to know that you've done good, not to shout it from the rooftops as Mr. Collins most assuredly would. A weaker writer would have tried to exploit this for new conflict and have, and this is in weaker rom-coms where basically what Darcy does is he throws money at the problem because money is the only solution for the problem, which is Wickham's just right. Like that's the only thing that is going to like sway Wickham to do anything is you have to throw cash at him to do when he needs to do the right thing. Worst of libertines. Um, Yeah. 
And so Darcy does this honorable thing by throwing cash at the situation and a weaker rom-com would have taken the situation and have Elizabeth be pissed off by it and be like, you think you could just buy your way into me respecting mm-hmm. you? You think you could just earn my respect by buying it and throwing and cash And then Darcy would it? have had to earn it uh, by another, another way yeah. and jump through a different hoop. But instead but- we get to sit with Elizabeth saying... Well, he did this great thing, and I very much admire him, but I'm okay because even though we're never going to be together, I I can very much admire him, and we can be on the same page. And he did a pretty admirable job of trying to keep it secret, mm-hmm. of just being like, I just, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm just trying to make things right. I know. He, he was like Gandalf, and he's like, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, keep it secret, keep it safe. And they're like, <laughs> um, sorry, Lizzie. Oh, it's Lydia who's like, yeah, <laughs> Lydia is the golem of the situation. <laughs> um, but what's so great about Darcy, and this is why he's the hero, and this is why he's so hot, is that he comes out and is honest and is like, look, I don't like your family. I think they're annoying. I think they're loud. I just I think they're kind of stupid um, and their their behavior is dishonorable to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the. That's why I act the way I act, because someone needs to act like that. And they they leave such a stink behind that I've got to cover up for. Sure. It. He's almost compensating. Yeah. And uh, he goes and and in the same letter, he's like, and and I hate Wickham. I think he sucks. He's done some abhorrent things and I don't want to ever see him or talk to him or ever deal with him ever again. But and he explains in, as well. He explains the situation of why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he's like. You can understand why I hate him. Um, and in one action, he does something contrary to those feelings. He rescues the honor of the Bennett family and he does it by dealing and paying the one man that he hates and wants no business of and, and, and makes it so that Wickham is now a part of the Bennett family. That he wants to be a part of. (laughs) He also wants to be a part of the Bennett family. And by doing this, will spend the rest of his goddamn life being in relationship to Wickham. I know. And it's those layers that Elizabeth basically parses out for us. But before she knows that he's interested in being with her again, she's like, well he did something so good for my family and it's the worst because it's another, it's another moment of irony where she's like, it's the worst. Cause he's never going to want to be with me now that he saved my family, but he saved it for this horrible man that he would now have to mm-hmm. talk to and be shamed by. It's like, um, it's, it's what, it's what CS Lewis says about tithing is that it's got to hurt. If you're going to do something right, it's still got to hurt mm. and it hurts for him to do it's it. A, it's a penance well. for sure. For him to do something charitable is one thing. To do it charitable in this manner is a hundred billion times more impressive. Mm. I think one of my favorite sickest uh, burns in this book, because this book is a book full of sick burns, is in Mr. Darcy's letter. He says, I knew that Mr. Wickham ought not to be a clergyman. (laughs) Um, And Austin is is full of those little ribs that... um, that make her book so good. I also started writing down good Jane Austen band names. And I think for most of our uh, 1800s books, we should try to combine like uh, a good, a good passage um, into good band names. And one of them was blasted prospects. 
Oh, I love it. And, and then also Jane Austen words. Um, the last thing I'm going to say about her writing is that she she uses words in a way that um, make me want to look up the ones I don't know, and I'm not ashamed by that. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, can you can you guess what panegyric means? And ask. Oh, I saw that. I was going to look it up, but I was like, I'm never going to remember whatever it means. Welcome to Great Words, where today you get to learn the word panegyric. It is a noun, a public speech or published text in praise of someone or something. Panegyric. To be used in a sentence, Jill gave a panegyric of her sister during her birthday. Back to the show. good words um there's appro- approbation approbation which yep. do you know the difference between approbation and approval um well approbation is um is it by a set of rules it's pretty much no difference oh really okay it's pretty much the same word yeah. but it's 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 uh it's the um regency years of england and you have to have lots of different words that mean the same thing uh yeah she's full of a ten dollar what's the what's the term ten gallon hat that's a ten gallon hat of a word it's a word george costanza has been sitting on all day to use that's a (laughs) that's a word mr collins will use to sound really smart yeah i don't know what's more impressive is her style and language or his or her plotting um i think they're they're just they go so well together i guess yeah, she's an exquisite stylist, but an exquisite plotter that I think anyone who wants to write um, anywhere near this genre must read her. Here's a question I have for you. It's it's one of those um, ones that I don't think we can answer, but it kept coming up in my mind. When, when reading the uh, dialogue of this book, I kept wondering, is this how the well-educated spoke in the time period? Or is it very much like uh, the movies or books that we read today? Is it a is it a heightened and perfected use of language? Yes, she is the Quentin Tarantino of dialogue writers of her day. <laughs> I astounded you. Again. No, I I'm just wondering if it's true or if. <laughs> Or if you're just saying that for fun. No, I don't know. But I just wonder if 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 her dialogue is stylized and heightened because it's literature or if it's realistic. Because it, um, and I think I can't think of a proof. Yeah, but I don't know like, if there is well, a proof. Well, this is how it actually Because the only things that you can go back to are other books uh, written in the time, um, which means it could be possibly any of them are stylized. Um, speeches, letters, uh, these are these are all written forms of which I am much better in the in the written word than I am in speaking out loud, which is why why are we doing this podcast? <laughs> any other any other notes before uh, we find out, you know, oh, R- Ryan, what do you want to give this? what What is the award that you give this rom-com? Because I, like obviously Jane Austen writes like this great, 
female character and this like these great relations and one of the hottest hot men ever to be written in Mr. Darcy. Blame you, Hotman. What what award do you want to give this book being our first book in the rom-com genre? This is another moment of Ryan and Kelly's rom-com Oscars. Yeah, I would give it best screenplay or best best writing. I don't I will Best original story. I'm going to kind of plant my flag and say this is probably the best written thing we'll probably encounter on this entire podcast. I agree. Like um I mean I I can't imagine anything and this is, I mean, this is the pain of being an English major and loving the classics, but it's hard for me to imagine that a modern book will overtake this in style. Um, but I mean, it, it transcends, like Pride and Prejudice is still widely read. Right. It's not just read in the, the classroom. It's it's read as just um, a normal book that you you read Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Pride and Prejudice. It's, it's all Howells, the same. Um, had it on like it was like number. I was just walking through their bestsellers before this whole thing happened, and it was like number three. It was like, or uh, not number three. Number it was wow. number thirty three, but it was still like, still. like oh great, that's a two hundred year old book. <laughs> mm. We will walk through Powell's again, my friend. We will. I have books coming from Powell's. I'm so excited. Can't wait. But yeah, I would say best written. Me too. It's going to be a, a daily double there. Boop, 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 boop. Uh, novels, 1,200. Answer. Daily double. Yeah. Ooh. Um, well, but I already called it, so you have to have a, give it a different award. Oh, really? Um, I'm going to give it... Um, well, I mean, this is kind of... Um, this This kind of coincides with the writing, but I don't think I'll be able to escape it. Best Arguments. Uh-huh. At one point in the story, uh, Lady Catherine de Bourgh uh, shows up again, and she's she's trying to tell Elizabeth, "You'll never marry my nephew, and you're never going to, you know, enter in such an engagement." And Elizabeth is like, using the logic of a lawyer, she really lawyers Catherine de Bourgh. She's like, "Wait, you're telling me it's impossible that I could be married? So why are you even talking to me about this right now? So why, why are, are you here?" She's like, "She's like." I just want you to know. I need you to say it. And I'm not used to being, um, you know, contradicted. And she's like, well, I'm sorry. That sounds like it sucks for you. <laughs> uh, but it's true. She's um, she's the niece of lawyers, right? And she has the right. like cleverness of her dad on her side. And she always has to be able to like outwit her mom in order to get her to stop talking. It's like she's very practiced at being a good arguer and i mean that's that's shown when she is patient with uh mr collins when she argues with mr darcy and when they have their repartee and then when she finally shuts down catherine de Berg, who is a lady she is somebody way above her in status yeah mm -hmm. that's pretty cool uh i have a challenge for you if you were forced to put this story in a modern day context a la 10 things i hate about you what modern day context would you put this story in? Like, I mean, just because you said that high school sounds like a fun place to watch this. Um, mm -hmm. Because you can have like, a, like, I guess a prep school where, where you have a bunch of rich kids and not as rich kids 
in a prep school. Mm -hmm. Do you have a good one? Well, I want to do high school, but I would be Ooh. forced to take some like serious plot turns of like Lydia would, would get pregnant. Yeah, it's like, oh, God. Um, and like if it's a high school thing, then she would have to be like a ninth grader. And she's like, oh, yeah, 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 because yeah. um, yeah, she's like 15 in the books. Right. Yeah. What about space? That's really contemporary. <laughs> um, like Star Wars. Well, because the, the only one that we've seen this in is British or that I can think of is British marketing firm. Is, is that what um, uh, Bridget Jones's diary is set in? Um, sure. I mean, cause that's a, that's a pride and prejudice adaptation, right? Oh, I think <laughs> no, it Man, is. we are showing, we are showing some serious um, weakness right now. We're supposed to be the guide and we're not sure about this. That's okay. We'll have to, we'll have to get to it. We are here like um, like anybody like anybody in an Austin story. We don't want to be too full of ourselves. We want to admit when we don't know something and say that we'll learn about it. Mm -hmm. Dearest Ryan. Yes. Who wouldeth thou falling in love with? <laughs> hmm. um, who would I fall in love with? It's uh, I actually kind of have a tough choice between Jane or Elizabeth. Go on. Because well, just because Jane has such a, and it's just kind of like Bingley's right to really have an affection for her that she has such a bright outlook towards everything and out, everyone, and that's such a lovely quality to have. She's affable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, but Elizabeth, though, also has um, a, you know, can I say both? Can I cheat? No. Uh, well, I'm going to pick Elizabeth, but I'm going to say that Sarah is a composite of Jane and Elizabeth because... I get to argue uh, with Sarah. Uh, I'm yeah. so tired Deal of hearing it. you Deal with say, ah, oh, my wife is just perfect like this one, but kind of also with the perfections of this one. But that's the thing. We relate to it because we have these characters in our life. And they're not one-to-one, -one, but what we enjoy about Pride and Prejudice is the banter and repartee. And that is more i would say sarah is uh, much more a mr darcy when it comes to repartee <laughs> what does that mean like the way that she repartees i would say she's much more a oh mr. she's darcy. much more like just she snaps it way quicker it, it just seems like she has something just, at the ready most of the time yeah she's pretty brilliant um but she also sees the best in people or aspires to see the best in people. And, um, but she also will not, you know, hesitate to get into a sparring match of wits. So sorry, going to cheat. What about you? No, what do you mean? You're going to cheat. Oh, uh, I know saying... the job isn't Ryan. The job isn't to say, Oh, well, let's see. My wife is the most, of this and this person. So I'm going to say a little bit of both. You have to choose. 
um, I know that's my problem is that it's like I'm choosing, but it doesn't really count because I'm acknowledging that it does count I see because you sides. have to choose which you'd rather have. Fine. I'm choosing Elizabeth because it'll be more feisty. <laughs> there we go. That's all I wanted. And spicy. I am also going to choose Elizabeth. Um, I It was a close match between because if you're going to take Jane or you're going to take Bingley, like, I mean, either of them are good because they're very much like each other. Um, mm-hmm. And Mr. Darcy is, he's great, but I think, um, and I think he's not going to be too much of a project for Elizabeth, but he might be a little bit much of a project for myself. <laughs> and it's just Darcy, there's, it requires a special personality to deal with Darcy because he'll never crack a smile for you. It's like, Darcy, lighten up. He's like, no, I don't like this. Uh, not until the end. No, like, I think. And when she saw him at uh, uh, Derbyshire, 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 yeah, um, mm. she said that he was like, he was smiling all the time and he was like less haughty and he was talking with people. I think we don't get to see the best of Darcy and that's um, kind of the... The whole point is that he's he had to learn to be unreserved. Um, but yeah. I'm also going to go with Elizabeth. She is headstrong, uh, kind, witty, and brutally honest, but never in a mean way. Well, I mean, she is in a mean yeah. way if if she's angry enough. But you got to really damage her family or something to get her to that point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, she's Agreed. great. Agreed. Okay. Um, so thanks for reading along with us everybody um it really Mm -hmm. means a lot that you all came here and did this with us um we're gonna have more books we'll probably do uh one every couple months i would say and i'm thinking we'll probably do more guided um stuff along the way that we'll we'll make it clear when we're starting to read a book so that we might be able to do like online forums and Mm -hmm. kind of like talk through things as we're reading it and kind of have a real book club aspect that we can kind of, you know, stir the pot as we're, we're getting through. And actually um, we're going to be starting to read a book that we're not necessarily going to talk at length about on the podcast, but um, that book is going to be, I'll have what she's having, how Nora Ephron's three iconic films saved the romantic comedy. Uh, and that one's by Aaron Carlson, who we're actually going to have on the show in a couple of weeks. And so if anybody's interested in that book, we're going to be talking about that with her. And she'll be bringing a surprise movie that we won't tell you about yet. But yeah, so uh, that's kind of what we're up to and what we're reading. Are you, Ryan, I want to I want to start a, a new segment. I don't know what to call it yet, but um, I'm interested in what else romantic has been going on in your life. And, and I mean, books, TV shows, <laughs> or like something special that happened, at, you know, romantically, or what's like the best thing that you've seen romantically this week? And I would also like to put a call out to anybody who's sending us emails. If you have something really romantic that happened in your week, maybe we can, or you know of something in the world that happened that's super romantic, maybe we can like highlight it on the show. Um, I will try and link this to romance, but um, I don't know how well it will be linked but um as you know i've been binging a lot of star wars cartoons and sarah and i watched all of the clone wars except for the final season because we wanted to watch it in order that these things were made so we watched clone wars and now we're watching star wars i love how romantic this is Um, you're right (laughs) 
<laughs> Bear with me. So we're binging Star Wars Rebels, which we're watching on Disney+. Plus. We've been watching so much Star Wars cartoons that I'm now starting to have dreams about it and that I'm now starting to live the Star Wars and that I'm like becoming these characters. No, see, I used to tell my friends when I was uh, in elementary school that every once in a while my TV would suck me in and I would be a part of the Star Wars <laughs> movie. So is this what you're saying? Is this what you're telling me? Yes. Ryan, well, Ryan, uh, just... no, audience, also Ryan right now is wearing a Star Wars t-shirt. I just want to let you know. <laughs> But it, it's that idea of uh, Star Wars is a throwback to classical romance stories of the swashbuckling Lord of the Rings type of story where it's about heroism and that's what romantic stories are. It's a throwback to Flash Gordon, right? Yeah, but also that, you know, the Jedi as the Knights of the Round ah, yes. yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's... I when I have <laughs> have these dreams, it, it's that more mythical kind of I'm a part of something important kind of mm. feeling of I'm part of, of this cosmic battle for good and it, it feels fulfilling to my heart. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that sounds great. Um, I'm glad that you're Ryan and I were talking on the phone the other day and he was like, I've been really obsessed with Star Wars recently. And the one thing I didn't say was <laughs> recently, recently, you mean yeah. always good. Um, I let's see. Um, I recently have been taking Robin through her first, like all the way watch through of Parks and Rec. And we just watched um, Leslie Nope and Ben Wyatt get married. And it's such that show is so optimistic. Like I really love the office. Um, it's one of my favorite shows as well, but parks and rec does something where even if something bad is happening to all, any of their characters, it is, it always finds a way to be optimistic without being saccharine or unbelievable. And the romances in that show are absolutely tear jerky to me. Um, like I, 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 it's so good. And so that's that's my romance mm. that I'm watching this week. I concur. It's wonderful. I have another one that's far more um, relevant. I just watched, I rewatched um, Harold and Maude this oh, morning. Oh, uh, hey. Which is a great film from the 1970s about a young man falling in love with a 80-year-old woman. And it's a unconventional romance. And Kooky it's and wonderful. really fantastic film. And that soundtrack. Yeah. It's, Cat Stevens. Mm. Yeah. Cat Stevens is the soundtrack. It is probably one of the most influential films for Wes Anderson that you wouldn't have a movie like Rushmore without Harold and Maude. So if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. It's on Amazon prime. Um, stream you know, I now. never made that connection. It's, That's it's yeah. Excellent. It's like even the, the clothing style is, is very much pulled yeah. from that. Yeah. So, so That's, that's what I watched. Cool. Uh, all right. Let's pick out the movie we're going to watch next week. Yeah. Um, I'm bringing up um, a list randomizer list randomizer. And I'm going to put in all of our movies. Obviously, I've been watching a lot of Parks and Rec. Because I'm singing the song. Ryan Graves. Hey. Um, come. Oh, that was your Chris Traeger. It's William Darcy. It's literally the most proud person I've ever met. <laughs> all right, Ryan. Roll me a number or call me out a number. I don't care. It's getting late. Do the thing. Between what? Uh, I oh between one and a hundred and thirty six. The number two. <laughs>
That was my Alan Rickman. Well, I said, what about breakfast at Tiffany? I said, I think you remember the film and. You know, I never listen to lyrics. <laughs> okay. We are watching uh, breakfast at Tiffany's next week. Apparently. Um, Sounds great. Audrey Hepburn. Uh, actually, uh, let's tell the people where they can watch it. Oh, Holly go lightly and oh, breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, go watch it on something. I have it on Blu-ray. So everybody go to Ryan's house. It's on where Hulu with a subscription. Um, you can rent it from iTunes, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Vudu, Google Play. It's everywhere. It's a classic. It'll be no problem for you to find. Um, unless you don't have use of a computer and you have to use Blu-rays or DVDs, then, you know, you're going to have to Come wait for to months. Come over to my house. <laughs> um, Come over to my house. We'll have a party. Yeah, but oh, actually, we're, you we're can't. isolating we're still, right now, so sorry. Still sheltered in place. <laughs> Ryan has a baby. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah. Come feel free to check us out on uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, Twitter, rom, at romcom gents. That's where we are. Uh, send us an email, um, romcomgents at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of the episode or if you have, you know, just something romantic you want to tell us about. Um, just. Just let us we know. Want to know. And the best way you can support uh, the show and the most helpful thing to us is if you like what you're listening to, please tell your friends that you think would enjoy this show. Um, you know, that's the best way uh, to help us out is just to get the word out of the show. And so if, if you recommend it to just one friend, that would be such a beautiful, lovely, wonderful thing. We love anybody who listens to this, whether you're a Wickham or a Collins or a Mrs. Bingley or a Catherine de Berg, doesn't matter. We'd still love you to listen. We're not prideful we about think... it or prejudiced against you. <laughs> we would love um, it. Uh, and also, if you uh, are feeling like uh, an 18th or let's see, a 19th century patron and you feel like patronizing us for any reason at all, you can also check out our website at anchor.fm um and there's a little support button if you're feeling super generous of course by all means we're all having a wonderful hard time out there so do not feel obligated but if you are a patron we wouldn't mind (laughs) um and if you lucked out on your uh, unemployment and if you're making more money now unemployed than you were employed then maybe now's the time to help us uh, artists out who do not have that situation especially as artists who are self-employed and they haven't gotten back to me yet (laughs) (laughs) um well i love everybody but i really especially love ryan graves and i'm gonna write you a letter this week oh expressing all of my love and derision and caprice and all the other words that would possibly come up. And I'm going to misinterpret it at first and then reread it and reread it and reconsider my feelings towards you. That sounds so fun. Let's do that. Uh, but let's let's make parchment first and send oh, it on parchment. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. I love you. Love you too. Bye. <laughs> and this is where we will say a goodbye. Ryan and Kelly must bid you adieu. Thank you for listening to our review. Rate and subscribe, we'll even take a bribe. So see you next week on the Gentleman's Guide.
to rom-coms. Oh shit. <laughs> I hung up on you. <laughs>